All right, so we need to send our kids off. If they're going, they're going now. If you're, uh, you got kids in, and you want to send them down to Kids City now. Would be a great time to do it. And while they're, while they're heading down there to our children's ministry, we have a very important task for you this morning. I want you to, to in, a, in groups of two or three, I want you to do your best Gollum impersonation. Okay. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, I don't know if he's speaking English then find somebody that can tell you what that means. Okay? Go. Okay. So raise your hand if you if you were one of the, the latter asking, I don't know who that is. Okay. There are some unrepentant sinners in the room. Okay, let me catch up real quick. Gollum is, of course a.k.a. Smeagol, it's, it's a character in The Lord of the Rings, which is not just a movie, it was also a book written a long time ago by a guy, a brilliant guy named um, J.R.R. Tolkien. And so he writes this book it's about, called The Lord of the Rings, and it's, it's the, the best trilogy of, of uh, fiction ever made, and it also ended up being the, the greatest trilogy of film ever made. And so you got this character named Gollum, and um, Will does a really good... Gollum, will you come and do that for me so I can give an example? Come on. Come here. I, I just, I need to paint the picture. Come here. Come on. Come on. Okay. Shut up. My precious, my precious. That's, that's quite impressive. Okay, so... That's impressive. Now, if, you, if you've never seen the trilogy and or read the books, you need, you need to be in the will of the Lord. You need to do that soon. Now, here, here's the case with this character, and here's why I bring him up this morning. Okay, he was, he was a normal little guy named Smeagol at one point, and he finds this ring, and the whole trilogy centers around this ring of power made by a very dark, evil lord, and he puts his power in it, and it's just this big epic tale of, of good and evil and good triumphing over, triumphing over evil. And the, so this little normal average guy finds this ring, and it transforms him into something else, into this kind of this monster, this, this creature that lives under the mountain, and, he's, and he's, he's creepy, and he's scary, and he's not the same that he used to be, and he, and he talks exactly like that. That's really actually kind of impressive. And he's, he's not even like in the form of a... A human anymore. He kind of crawls around like an animal, and it just it became it becomes his master, and it and it rules his whole entire life, and it it changes him and it transforms him, and so everything in his life is in reference to the fact that he's got this ring. It's his master, and so any any part of his day is tethered to the fact that he's got this ring that he calls his precious. And he worships it. It's, it is not just his idol, it is his Lord. And so when he loses it, I don't want to spoil it. Well, it's your fault because you haven't seen it. When he loses it, his life is over because it is his life. It was his life. And, and it changes everything. And he falls apart and he collapses. I mean, he just, he is broken and crushed because he, he's lost his Lord and his master. Okay. So here's where we are today, and here's, I want to go ahead and give you the big idea right up front, okay? We're looking through Acts chapter 23 today. So you can go ahead and turn there, because we're going to go through the whole chapter. So, you know, buckle up. We've got a lot to cover. Here's the big idea. You will follow your Lord wherever He 
she or it may lead. You'll follow your Lord wherever he, she, or it may lead. All right, we've got some notes, and that's on your note sheet. If you need some notes and you don't have any, raise your hand. We'll get somebody to give you some. Um, on the notes sheet, there's also um, there should be a, a QR code on there that you can scan with your smart device um, to get the expanded outline. Uh, there's a lot more content on that than on the notes, uh, so you might want that for later or to follow along this morning. Uh, anybody else need some notes? A pen? Need a pen to go with the notes? Good. Okay, so just like Gollum made this ring his lord, we have lords in our life. And they become our masters. And our life focuses, every ounce of our life focuses on the fact that that or he or she or whatever is our Lord. And we want to look, we want to keep looking at Paul's journey because he's a man who had one Lord. One Lord that's Jesus. Okay? And it explains how he made the journey that he made, how he did all that he, how he endured all that he endured. It explains it from head to toe who Paul was, why he was the way he was, why he had the journey that he did. Okay? So, Let's just read right into it. If you've got your Bibles and you're in Acts 23, I want to start reading the first five verses. Um, let's just read the first verse, because it's really, really important. It's kind of the heart of this morning. The first verse says, Paul, looking intently at the council, and these were all of the Jewish high priests, it was the high priests and all the Jewish leaders, all the, all the, the leaders in Jerusalem, he looked at them with, and he said, Brethren, I have lived my whole life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Let me read it again. He said, looking intently at the council, brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience up to this day. All right, and if you'll remember a little bit of backstory, Paul, um, he is just being, uh, being, the Jewish leaders are trying to imprison him and they're turning him over to the Romans and they're saying he's, He's blaspheming our God, and we want you to beat him, and we want you to, to flog him and, and throw him in prison, and they want to kill him, and they're always trying to murder him, and they're following him around the whole world, and they're trying to murder Paul. And so the Romans uh, are the ones that are in occupation, so they really are the ones that run everything. And so they take him, and they chain him, and they're, they're about to beat him, and Paul says, oh, you know, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And so then they say, whoa, because that would be breaking their laws. So they take him, they free him, and they put him into custody, and they bring him to this court of Jewish leaders the next day. And that's where we're at in, Roman, in Acts 23. Okay? And he, te he tells them, I've lived a perfectly good conscience up to this day. So here's a couple questions that we've got to ask. Does this mean Paul never sinned? Well, no, obviously not. And you can verify that with Scripture like in Romans 7 where he sounds like a confused college student saying, well, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't want to do the things that I do, and... And I really want to do the right things, and my flesh is weak. Well, and he, he goes on, and he talks, obviously, about he has struggles of sin. So we know that's not the case. So to say I've got a perfectly good conscience does not mean that I am perfectly sinless, or else he could be his own Savior, and only Jesus was that. All right, so here's the question. How do you honestly make a statement like that and still have sin? Well, here's the answer. I think the Lord's given me and wants me to share with you and share especially with me this morning is that you make a statement like that, I've got a perfectly good conscience before the Lord, 
when Jesus is not just your Savior, but he's your Lord. Okay? And that's, that's where we're at today. It's not enough for Jesus to be your Savior. And I know that sounds borderline heretical if you don't complete the sentence. He's got to be your Lord, too. Okay? This doesn't give you this either or. It's a package deal. It's not enough for him to just be your Savior. He's got to be your Lord as well. All right? That's where we're at today. Um, So what does it mean? What does that mean to submit your life to Jesus as Lord? Okay, and probably some of you are thinking, I just kind of thought that was the same deal. I thought that if, if I'm a Christian, that means that he is my Lord and he is my Savior. Think of it like this. If you were, if you were in 9-11, if you were in one of the towers when they fell that day, and you are completely crushed, and you are moments from running out of oxygen, and, and a fireman or a police officer pulls you out of that and saves your life. He is your Savior. Is he your Lord? No. What would make him your Lord? If you followed after him and you fell on your knees and you said, Oh, you've saved me. you You are my master now. I will follow you in everything. I'll do anything that you want me to do. You I am all yours. Consider me your man for the rest of your life. That would make him your Lord. So him being your Savior didn't automatically make him your Lord. Does that make sense? There's a difference. The word Lord, um, the Greek word for it is kurios, not curious. Curiously enough, it literally means, literally means master. Everybody say master. It literally means master, authority. And Romans 10.9, I'll read it to you. You can make a note of it if you'd like, but Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You confess him as your Lord, he will be your Savior. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Here's the problem. We're bad about letting Jesus be our Savior and making ourselves our master or someone else our master or something else our master. And look at the person beside of you and say, I make a terrible master. We're all in agreement, so we'll just make it Jesus. Okay, hear this. Salvation is not just Jesus saved me from my sins. It's Jesus purchased me out of sin, and now he is my master. Okay? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that he purchased us so we belong to him, not ourselves. It literally says you're not even your own anymore. You hear that language? It's, it's this, bib, this biblical imagery, and, I, and if you get the outline and you download that, there's a, a link to, um, to kind of an article that e- expands on this idea and this imagery in Scripture that Jesus was redeemed us. I mean, he purchased us. And when you purchase something, you own it. You, it doesn't, it's not like free-reign chicken or something over here. I mean, it, he owns it. So there's a great article in there 
about this. First Corinthians says he purchased us and we belong to him now, not ourselves. So let's keep expanding on what it means because I know this can be kind of confusing to have Jesus as our Lord. So let me give you an even more confusing statement that just came to me and I wanted to share and it's, it's, it's alliterated quite well. Jesus as Lord means living all of life in light of his lordship. One more time. Jesus as Lord means living all of life in light of his lordship. And here's what that means. Okay, let me give you a, a just really simple example. Glasses. Okay, if you wear glasses, you see everything through your glasses, right? You have lenses here, and you see everything. So Jesus as Lord means every ounce of my life, he's not just my Savior over here, he's, he's lenses. Looks kind of funny. So if you want to do this, so I'm not the only one doing this. I'm just going to do like this because I can't talk into a microphone. Jesus as the gospel is the, are these lenses. And so when Jesus is your Lord and your master, you don't just see life. You see life through these lenses of Jesus. Everything, everything points back to that, that he is your Lord. Everything. Your marriage. Your, your job. Your children, your relationships, your breakfast, everything is, is Jesus is my Lord, and in reference to that, how will I live? How will I respond? Does that make sense? Every decision I base on what my Lord wants, not me. I obey His commands over my desires because He's Lord, not me. So, that means that there is sin, right? He outlined much of it for us. And he said, abstain from it. So there is sin, and so if you've got a master that says this is sin, then that means that you do what with that sin? You stay away from it. It means that you obey his commands over your desires, because he's the Lord and not you. And when you choose, conversely, when you choose to do those, when you choose to practice that sin... What are you doing? You're making another master. You're saying, well, this is this sin, while my Lord says don't do it, is a better master. Maybe just for today, but it's a better master. So I'm going to choose to do this. And I'm going to take lordship, Jesus, I'm going to put those reins on this. Does that make sense? That's what we're doing when, when we're disobedient because we've got a master. It's, it's this beautiful imagery in, in the Bible, and it's like a king and, and his servants, and you don't dare disobey the king, right? It means, him being your Lord means you recognize sin in your life, and you walk away from it. It means that you react to people with his heart, not your heart. It means that you hear with his eyes, and you hear with his eyes. See, I don't even catch that because y'all are sleeping. You see with his eyes and you hear with his ears, not yours, because he's Lord and you're not. I want to read you a little quote. It's actually kind of a long quote, but I've cut it in half. And um, It's by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. I want to read this. He gives this really great example of what it means for Jesus to be your master. It says, Jesus is Lord, and if he's Lord over all, it means Jesus is my Lord. 
And that's what you're saying when you confess Jesus as Lord. You're saying Jesus can call the shots for my life. He can tell me how I should think about myself, about my marriage, about the world. Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, not me. I am not an autonomous creature. I live to serve this master. Think about um, another, another good image to, to kind of paint this is skiing. Any, any skiers in the room? Snow skiers. I've seen you ski. I don't know. Any water ski? Okay. Like, I don't ski. I skied one time, and it was on snow. And, I mean, I struggled in, in the chairlift line. I mean, I looked like this, you know. And everybody's like, bend your knees. And I'm like, they are bent. <laughs> bend them in like this. But now what do I do? The chairs come. I mean, I, I, I fell down in the chairlift line. I knocked somebody down in the chairlift line. I don't ski. I got up to the top, and I'm scared to death I'm going to fall off of this thing before I get out of it. And I tried, and I'm, I fall down, I fall down. And so when I, the, time, the one time that I skied, I carried my skis down most of the slope. And I was just like, I'm done. I'm just here. I'm not skiing. And so I can't even imagine water skiing because you don't even have anything to fall on. I mean, you just sink. Like, I don't sink on the snow. It's just big snow, but you just sink in the water, right? So this is this, this image of, of salvation and lordship. It is, is think of it like water skiing. You know, Jesus, as your Savior, pulls you out from drowning in this water where you have no life jacket and you've got nothing and you're just in the middle of the ocean and he can pull you up. But if he's not your Lord and you say, let go of my life, then what do you do? You sink right back. If you say, I've got a better Lord, and, Je and you say, Jesus, take your hands off, then you're going to sink right back in this water. There's nothing to fall down onto. And so when you're skiing, when you're water skiing, it's pretty important to be tethered to a boat because you can't just go like this in the water, right, on skis. I mean, you just, you're going to sink. So when you're tethered to a boat, you go where the boat wants you to go, right? The boat directs and guides you on the water, and it keeps you up. It keeps you on top of the water. You don't tell the boat where to go, right? You don't, you don't manage it from back there on the road. It leads you and it guides you. And what you're really doing is you're just following in behind it and you're being obedient to the path of the boat. Does that make sense? That's the lordship of, of Jesus. And that's what we see in Paul. And I'll tell you why. That's how he can say, I've lived with a perfectly good conscience up to this point. Not because he's sinless, but because everything he's done is for the glory of God. And, and he's, he's weighted out everything with lenses, just like this. We'll just do this all morning, like the Monopoly man. Do not pass go. Do not collect the $200. So conversely, then, what does it look like? If that's what it is for him to be your Lord, what's it look like when he's, when he's not your Lord and he's just your Savior? And I acknowledge the fact that there might be some in here this morning, and very likely that he is neither, okay? And we'll get to that. He might neither be your Savior or your Lord, okay? But what if he is just your Savior and not your Lord? There's no room for a good conscience. And you know exactly what I'm talking about if he is not your Lord in this morning. There's no room for a good conscience, and you don't have peace because you're serving the wrong master. Because you serve the wrong master. So you can't say that because 
I've got another master. I look through with a different set of lenses. If Jesus is your Savior, listen to this. What's it mean when he's your Savior? You're a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. And it means you have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God and sealed. Ephesians 1. One of the Spirit's jobs is to do what in your life? As to what? Lead and guide. Say it louder. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our life is to convict us. And guess what? He's great at it. So when you don't have a, a good conscience, guess what? There's a good reason. Because you're, if, you're, if you've been saved, you're filled with the Spirit of God that won't let you alone. And won't let you have any peace. So if you've got a bad conscience, there's a reason. And if you've made something else your Lord and you're serving it by being disobedient to, to your true Lord, then it's your master, and that's why you're miserable. Okay? Does that make sense? That's why you're miserable. Because the Holy Spirit's doing his job to say, come back to the right Lord. You're serving the wrong master. And there's probably a lot of things running through your mind of what might be my master this morning. Okay? We're gonna, we'll keep looking at that and we'll keep thinking through that. Now listen, no more than it means Paul isn't perfect, it doesn't mean that you're sinless either. Okay? 1 John, it, some, some great stuff in 1 John chapter 3 about practicing sin. You hear that? Practicing. Okay? You will not be perfect, but if Jesus is your Lord, you won't practice it. Sometimes you see the word habitual sin. It's, it's, a, it's my lifestyle is this sin. It's what I do. Even though I know it's wrong, I do it because it's a better master than Jesus. Being, him being your Lord, First John tells us, you won't do that. Okay? So go back to the big idea. Okay? The big idea was you'll follow your Lord wherever he, she, or it may lead. Doesn't that make more sense now? Because you can have different lords. And whoever they are, you're going to follow them. You hitch your giddy up to another speedboat, and you're going to follow it. Whether that be your boyfriend, or your pride, or, or money, or whatever. You're going to follow them, and you're going to worship them. And that's pretty heavy language, but that's what you do with masters. You worship them. Um, so, who's your lord, church? We made it through one verse. Cha-ching! Here we go. Paul can say, I've lived with a perfectly good conscience up to this point because Jesus is his Lord. And everything reflects that. Okay, so moving on. We've got a lot more to read. Look at verse 2. This does not sit very well with the high priest. Verse 2, The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You ever pull that one out? <laughs> Whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law, order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you not revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay. So here's kind of where we're at. I'm calling this 
the beginning of Paul's farewell gospel tour. And we're going to blow through the rest of the book of Acts in the next month, and you're going to see him preach Jesus. By the, by the time it's over, preach Jesus to Jewish leaders, chief priests, the high priests right here, a Roman commander and his soldiers, two Roman governors, a king, and ultimately Nero, the emperor of essentially the entire world. Okay? Paul, who says, Jesus is my Lord and the Lord alone, is going to end up telling the, the emperor of the world the gospel by the time this thing's over. And, and so he starts right, he starts here. And this is where this journey to the end kind of starts. And, and you see him being tried by these um, Jewish priests, and he rebukes the high priest. And so the question that might be asked was, was he sinful for this? Was this a wrong thing for Paul to do? Um, Ecclesiastes 10.20 says, don't, don't even think curses about your king or your authority. Okay. Jude 1.8 says that evil men reject authority. Ananias was not technically Paul's authority because he was a religious authority. We're not going to get into that because we could just stay here all day and just kind of go into something here and all this speculation. Um, it, it's important to note that prophets of God in the Old Testament, Isaiah 1, for example, speak boldly against rulers and two rulers. And so here's kind of the, my quick conclusion here of was Paul right or wrong in this? Um, Jesus handpicked him for salvation, and he blinded him, and he said, you're going to go preach my gospel before kings. Okay? And then he wrote, like, half the New Testament. So I'm just going to say that Paul's probably all right in what he said here. I'm just going to say that. Now, what I will say to us is that it is a very biblical thing, respect of authority governmental authority as well. That's a biblical thing. Exodus 22:28 says, do not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So can we pause for a minute and just say, we do have an authority over us, okay? We do have government over us as American citizens. Church, okay? We do have a president. His name is Barack Obama. We do have federal and state government. And when our lives are consumed with speaking evil of the, the leaders over us, guess what? You're being obedient to script, disobedient to Scripture. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Like it or not, the Bible has called you to be respectful of your authority. And, when, and here's, what, here's what we see, and I see it a lot. When politics is your Lord instead of Jesus... Your talk about government will show it. It'll show it. The easiest way for me to tell if you worship politics more than Jesus is to have a conversation with you and or look at your Facebook. Because you know how I'll know? Because that's all you talk about. And when something is all you talk about, it's a pretty good bet that it's, an, it's the object of your worship. And, I, and I've had to repent of that in the past. I'll just be real upfront. I was super, super political in the past. And, and it came to a day where God, he didn't audibly speak to me, but he impressed on my heart, look, you know what you're consumed with the most is, is politics. And how am I your Lord if that's the case? 
So, you know, this morning you might need to repent of that. Maybe your attitude is rotten when it comes to government one way or the other, one side or the other, or, or politics. It doesn't mean that, you don't, that you're not a responsible citizen. It doesn't mean that you're not informed and you don't vote and you don't speak uh, your mind and your opinions. But Romans 13, 1 and 2, Paul tells us, be subject to your government because God gave them authority. And get this, they are there because God placed them there. It's not because enough people didn't vote the way you think they should have voted or they, enough people voted the way you thought. No, 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 no. They're there because a very sovereign God wanted them there. So don't fight that because that's just Bible. Um, is Jesus your master or is government? Think about that. And it's not just government, man. It, it's the question of the morning. What's your master? I can tell a lot. Of, I can tell your master by checking your Facebook. I can tell your master by having conversations with you. I can tell if you've got more than one. Let's keep going. Acts 23, verse 6 through 10. Let's read that chunk. Are you ready? But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in, in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them, a Roman commander. And he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. All right, pause. Okay. This is kind of a funny circumstance because you've got these Pharisees that hate Paul and you've got the Sadducees that hate Paul. The only thing is the Pharisees hate the Sadducees more than they hate Paul. And so Paul played the Pharisee card. And he's like, whoa, 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 I'm technically one of you guys. And so then they're like, oh, well, we can't, oh, wait. Well, we hate you guys and, and we believe in this and no, this is wrong. And so Paul kind of, incites this kind of riot to get out of their hands. And, and I'll just give you kind of real super brief um, definition of Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, they were the two largest sects of Judaism, sects, S-E-C-T-S of Judaism. It's kind of like a religious denomination. The Sadducees rejected biblical teachings of angels that God would resurrect anyone from the dead and that we have eternal souls that live after our bodies die. They're like, everything's matter. We're just all physical matter. It's up. When it's up, it's up. Paul played the Pharisee card because they believed the opposite, which actually Jesus was a Pharisee, if you want to get right down to it. There's some differences in how they lived out their beliefs. So a Roman commander protects Paul, a Roman citizen, brings him into the barracks, and you see this trend with Paul. You see this trend with Paul that it's not all bubbles and puppies and kicks and giggles, right? 
everybody's always wanting to kill this guy. He makes everybody angry. He makes everybody so angry that they want to knife him. Okay? You ever got somebody so mad that they're just going to knife you? A lot of knifing going on. We were in Scotland one time. There's a lot of knifing going on because you can't legally have guns there. So everybody carried knives. And they were like, don't go out at night. You will get cut. You will be knifed. Some of our kids almost got knifed. I didn't get knifed because I can listen. So everywhere Paul goes, somebody's wanting to kill him. And it's this, it's this picture that is contrary to a lot of, of popular Christianity today that you follow Jesus and it's perfect. Everything's beautiful. Everything's easy. Everything makes sense. Everything is just, just smooth sailing when you follow Jesus. Well, ask Paul. Ask Paul if that's the case. Read your Bible and ask it if that's the case. Ask all the disciples, all the apostles who were all martyred for their faith, save John who got kicked off to an island and for the rest of his life and who knows what ended up at the very end. It's hard serving Jesus, okay? And if you remember when we were preaching, I think Paul was preaching that, um, that week in, in Acts 9 of Saul's conversion. He was Saul, he is now Paul. And you remember what Jesus said to him? Well, he told him, you're going to preach before kings and you're about to see that prophecy fulfilled. What else did he tell to him? You remember? We miss it a lot. Come on, somebody knows it. What did he tell him? I'll show you how much you got to suffer for my sake. What an invitation, right? Eyes, eyes closed, heads bowed. Jesus wants to ruin your life. Everybody in, raise your hand. I mean, this is what Jesus said to him. You're going to go minister, you're going to preach my word before kings, and I'll show you how much you've got to suffer for my sake. He wasn't lying. Um, but here's what he did. He acknowledged, Jesus acknowledges that following him isn't easy. Okay? And he does that for Paul in the next verse. So can we move on to the next verse? Verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and he said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my case at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Jesus in the flesh, comes and stands beside Paul, the Prince of Peace, that Isaiah tells us. He comes and stands beside Paul, and he encourages him. He says, take courage. That's a reminder that Jesus is all Paul needs. He's, he tells him that he's done a good job. This is affirmation that he's done a good job. He confirms all the difficult things that Paul had to face sharing the message. He confirms it. He tells Paul that he's not done with him yet. And he tells Paul that he needs him in Rome, which translation means you will not die here. How about that for encouragement? God came physically, stood beside a Paul and said, I know all these big bearded men out here running around with knives. You won't die here because I'm not done with you. And I'm more powerful than them and I'm your Lord. Keep obeying me, your master. Anyone need encouragement like that from Jesus? Anyone need encouragement from Jesus for your circumstances? Guess what? Paul's Jesus is the same Savior that paid for you, and he's your same Lord and Master. 
and you will have trouble. I'm going to give you some scriptures here. Let me give you some scriptures. They're in the, the expanded notes. If you don't want to jot it down, you just want to get that later. I want to read you some encouragement from scripture, from Jesus. You'll have trouble in this life, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus said that. John 16:33. You were created in his image. Genesis 1:27. He saved you for a purpose. Say I've got a purpose. Say it like you mean it. 2 Timothy 1:9. He saved you for a purpose. He'll work everything out for your good. Romans 8:28. His grace is enough for you, and in your weakness he'll make you strong. Like, for some of you, that's all you need this morning, that his grace is enough. And when you're weak, he'll make you strong. Second uh, Corinthians 12.9. He'll sustain you just like he sustains the world. And, and I want to step away from Acts for a moment. and I want to read you a passage from um, Matthew 6 that God just really impressed on my heart and, and um, said, go share this, and let me paint this picture for you. <clears throat> you know, Jesus is, is preaching this, and in Romans 6, 25, I want to read this really fast. Uh, he says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, not for your body, what you'll put on. Is life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds. I feed them. Look at the flowers, I clothe them. Verse 27, and, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? Why are you worried about clothing? Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which are alive today and tomorrow are thrown into the, fur, the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. It's not just about food and drink and clothes. It's about sustenance of life. Jesus is saying, I can sustain you. I've got you. Why are you worried? There's a, there's a really cool quote. I don't think I got it in the outline or not. It says, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. So, uh, Spurgeon said that. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Here's the, here's the crazy part about this passage, though. I never noticed it before until I'm studying about Jesus being our Lord. The verse right before that is a very familiar verse, but we, we um, divide it. We stop at, at verse 24, and then we read verse 25 and on as if they're separate. But here's what verse 24 says. No one can serve two masters. You hear that? No one can serve two masters. You know what the word there in the Greek for masters? Kurios, Lord, master, authority. No one can, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. No, 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 no. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. You can't serve money and man or, or money and God, or wealth and God, or insert your master here and God. He says, no, 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 you can't serve two masters and then he says, oh, by the way, don't be anxious, don't worry. And then you know what he ends up that passage with? Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. So what is Jesus saying? When I'm your Lord, you have no worries. 
You don't have an easy life. You don't have worries. And you have no need to be anxious. You see that pic- that beautiful, beautiful picture? Don't serve two masters because the other one can't sustain you. The boyfriend, the job, the girlfriend, the, the, the money, the, the vehicle, the, the desires of your heart. You know, those things can't sustain you, and you'll have more and more worries with those. If I'm your master, all those things will be added to you. And he says, seek first the kingdom. Boop. That's the, that's the lenses. Thanks, Eugene, for not making me feel awkward up here by myself. That's the lenses, right? It's the monopoly man. It's seeking first the kingdom. It's seeing everything through the, the lenses of the, the gospel of Jesus. It's, it's everything tethers straight back to the fact that Jesus is my Lord and I'm not my Lord because I'm an awful Lord. Make sense? Let's keep going. Um, all right, and then the last big chunk of scripture, and we'll just we'll read through it um, to kind of end the story of Paul right here. you got two plans, one that fails, one that succeeds. And Jesus encourages Paul and says, you won't die here. Great job, keep it up. And then verse 12 says, When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. I mean, they're serious. They say, I'm not eating until this man is dead. Okay? That's a big deal. And there were more than 40 of them who, who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and they said, We bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we've killed Paul. Therefore, you and the council notify the Roman commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation, which is funny because they didn't really have a very thorough investigation to start with. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near this place. So they're like, all right, you treat this guy, tell him, bring him down, we're going to give him an honest trial, and then when he comes out the door, we're going to jump him, and we're going to kill him. But, verse 16, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul, who's Paul's favorite nephew... Who's getting extra Hanukkah presents? This guy. The son of Paul's sister heard, came into the barracks, told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said to him, Lead this young man, my favorite nephew, love you, buddy, to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he looked, he took him, led him to the commander, which is pretty neat in and of itself that Paul had enough clout with the Romans, who he was always respectful of, because they, they were an authority over him. He was always respectful of them. And they trusted him, their prisoner, enough to say, hey, send this little 10-year-old kid to the, to the boss. He needs to tell him something. Like, let's not just breeze over that. That's, that's some favor right there. That doesn't come with being disrespectful of the authority over you and trashing the authority over you. All right. Sorry, move on. All right. Um, verse 19, the commander took him by the hand, and stepping inside, he began to inquire of him privately. And what is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. There's more than 40 of them lying in wait who have bound themselves not to eat or drink until they kill him. So the commander let the young man go and said, do not tell anyone you notif- notified me of this. And so he called 
to him, to the two, two of the centurions, and he said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. If you're keeping count, that's 470 soldiers that he says, I will escort Paul to Rome or to Caesarea. Paul was a Roman, remember, and this guy was a Roman. And if he let a Roman die on his watch by the Jews. So he was like very thorough here. Uh, 500 soldiers. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He was a Roman governor that was stationed in Caesarea. And he wrote him a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias, that's the commander, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain, I came to him with troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. So when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So soldiers did accordance to what they were told, because that's what you do. You obey your master. Do exactly what your master says. Hint, hint. But the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with them, they returned to the barracks. And when these had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor, presented Paul to him. When he read it, he asked from what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll give you a hearing um, after your accusers arrive, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. End of chapter. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay. Now, what what um what great work of God to make Paul a Roman citizen long before he ever knew it mattered? Because you're going to see Paul in the next couple of chapters request a hearing from Nero. And guess what? If you're not a Roman citizen, you don't do that. So God's at work constantly in all the details. It's awesome. Um, so here we go. Um, so the successful plan, and while you might, I said there was a successful plan, you obviously see the failed plan. The successful plan was not the Roman commanders, it was God's. That was God's work. That was God's work to have all of this orchestrated, and it was a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus told him just the night before, that you're going you're to make it out of this thing alive. And I wrote in the notes, just the... And I don't, irony is probably a, a bad word for it, but how ironic is it that Romans escort Paul from death all the way up to Rome to appear before the emperor of the world and preach the gospel to Nero, who years later would snap and try and kill all Christians. But it was those Romans that God used as his instrument. Say, I'm going to take the gospel everywhere. That's pretty cool. All right, so we're at the end of this chapter, and we've looked at the life of, of Paul, who endures this, all of this, and the rest of what you're going to see in Acts, because Jesus is not just his Savior, but is his Lord. So then we've just, we kind of got we to sit there for a minute and, and ask this question to us. Is Jesus your Lord? How many lords do you have? Which ones need to go? Um. <clears throat> First off, is Jesus your Savior? First, because he definitely can't be your Lord if he's not your Savior. All right, 
and in a room with this many people, there is there's a highly a high probability that some of you do not have Jesus as your Savior. And so I want to give you that opportunity this morning. And if you, you know, if if you want a little music to cut the silence, we can do that. This is probably a good time. Let's just do it. We'll cut the silence a little bit. Look, if you want, if you need Jesus to be your Savior. And you would say, no, 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 I, he's, he's not my savior. I'm just kind of doing this game. I've, I've not been all in yet. This morning, come to him. If you, would, if you would acknowledge the fact that your life is a train wreck without him and you want a more glorious train wreck like Paul had, you won't be let down. I promise.